Dear listener of the Overcoming Your Story podcast, this is your host, Miriam Joku. So this week is the second part of the interview I had with Rosie Young on her podcast, Changing Lenses. So um, Rosie is a coach, activist for justice, equity, decolonization, and inclusion, what we call JEDI. We used to be colleagues, and then she became an entrepreneur and and, uh, doing this. So in this second part of our conversation, we talk about workplace racism, how capitalist companies assimilate people from the minority. So um, I talk about my experiences of working as a Black African in Switzerland, how reporting racism to HR can fail the victim, like subtle uh, experiences of uh, um, of of racism and how these systems push us as minorities to sometimes want to become like the modern minority to be able to survive. But then I explained that that's not the way um, to go. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And again, I, I should have said the same for the other episode, trigger warning, because we talk about references to sexual harassment, racism, and workplace discrimination. Well, I mean, that's that's my experience. So, but again, if you're not ready for that, trigger warning. Okay. Um, so yeah, give it a listen and speak soon. Welcome to Changing Lenses. You're invited to step into the lives of people on the front lines of discrimination, racism, and exclusion. To see the world through their eyes and to hear their personal story of their fight for social justice. I'm your host, Rosie Young, a Chinese-Canadian immigrant, cis-straight female with invisible disabilities, and I am passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you also want to see social change happen? Then please join me in Changing Lenses. Each episode is hosted on colonized land that was taken from many Indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I seek truth and reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people of Turtle Island, and I call upon us all to decolonize our thinking, not just our systems. Now please, enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome back, Miriam. Hello again. It's so lovely to see you. Welcome to part two of our amazing episodes together. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. And uh, thank you for this space you're creating. Mm, yes, uh, we are. We Your first episode was so chock full of uh, meaningful and deep and personal stories. Um, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about your work experiences, not just uh, your personal experiences and some of the differences living in different countries. Um, But before we get into that, I also want to remind you again and remind our listeners uh, that I want you to feel safe and comfortable to be honest, real and vulnerable in our conversations. So I commit to you and our listeners that this is a safe space. And I invite you to keep me accountable to being respectful and non-judgmental, and to definitely let me know if I say or pronounce anything incorrectly. Thank you, Rosie. I, I know this is very important to you, and uh, it is a safe space. I can feel it. Okay, wonderful. 
So Miriam, in our last episode, we talked a lot about your background, growing up in Cameroon, you moved to Switzerland, you talked a lot about schooling and the prejudices and racism that you experienced in that. Uh, I want to talk now about sort of kind of the next phase of your life, I guess, and specifically around the workplace, especially nowadays in, well, around the world, but particularly in North America, where this racism is quite rampant, but people don't always realize how it shows up. Um, in workplace. And some people are even still asking the question, you know, why do we need to have more diversity, inclusion, and equity at work? So if we start with uh, your life in Switzerland and uh, maybe some of your first, like what was your first experiences working in Switzerland? What was that like for you as an, a strong African woman? <laughs> so um, after I finished university, it was after the I graduated in 2009, so just after the economic crisis of 2008. So it was kind of difficult to find a, a position, but I found a temporary position at the World Economic Forum. So it started off well because I, my boss was this um, uh, blonde, beautiful um, American woman, and she was she was a good boss. You know, she was. Um, relatable. She was an economist. She is an economist. She was a good boss in that I, I was not scared of her. And um, with trauma, we have this um, fear of authority, you know. And uh, in that case, I wasn't. So I wanted to do well, but she she created that space where I, I felt comfortable. I, I, I felt I belonged to the team, um, I was happy seeing her when she was coming into the office because she created that space. And um, it's good to to have that because afterwards, um, so I worked there for maybe five months. And since it was a temporary position, I was looking for work as well. And I found work in a Swiss bank. That was a totally different atmosphere. Mm. Because the thing is, my uh, trauma and uh, translated also in a lack of self-esteem. So I kept through my career applying to jobs that um, I was overqualified for because I was so scared to apply to the jobs I was qualified for. I was like, oh, no, but I cannot do this because I was doubting myself so much, right? Mm -hmm. And so since we are in a capitalistic system and then... <laughs> People expect you to look out for yourself. They don't care. So people were just too happy when I applied to certain jobs. They'll be like, because they knew I could apply to maybe like a professional job. Like that in that job, was a, it was a back office role. And I got there because I was, of course, you know, I still don't have any backup. I don't have any funds to fall on. I need a job, right? So it's hard to get a job. It's uh after the economic crisis. And so I, I get this job. I'm so happy. I get there the first day. I realized I made a big mistake. Like um, I became very depressed. I, uh, it was just, you know, it was just not what um, I wanted to be doing. And the environment was really, for a black person, it was, I heard things like, you should be happy as a black woman to have a job, you know? They actually said that. The yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was okay to say that, and um, yeah. So I just became very disillusioned, and uh, 
yeah, I, I fell into like total procrastination, depression, but I wouldn't quit. I was still there. And then at one point they decided to just um, change me from one team to another without telling me in advance. So they, they, they had, um, I was away for sick leave two days. When I came back, there was someone sitting on my desk. My things were packed and put away, you know. So I, I went, so Thursday, Friday, I didn't come to work on Monday. My things were put away. I think it triggered something. Now that I look back, it triggered some like rejection feeling in me very strong. And I cried and cried and cried. And I, I you know, I decided that it wasn't okay anymore. Mm-hmm. And I went to the HR and uh, trying to explain to them, I asked for a meeting. And as soon as I started talking, I just started crying. I said, how can you treat a human being like that? How can you pack my stuff? You know, I, I think, of course, it was bad, but I came already with such hurt of being rejected, right? And um, so they apologized. They apologized. HR apologized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did your yeah. boss apologize? He he did apologize. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he apologized. and um, But I told him I was still going to speak to HR. And from there we parted ways, you know, I wasn't. So I kept getting into these positions where mm-hmm. I was overqualified for. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, so my trauma was playing me in many different ways. So at the same time, I was overqualified for the role. And on the other hand, I was, I was not being recognized even for what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Because I think in the workplace, <laughs> somehow there are some people who sense other people being as vulnerable. I think other there are some bosses who sense when you don't have, um, when you doubt yourself, mm-hmm. you don't have uh, your self-esteem is not where it should be, and they can actually exploit you. And I, I went through that a lot, where you work and then your boss would go and go and say to his boss that he did it, and you were you had spent like five days doing messy work, cleaning up, fixing, and you would ask for help. You say, no, no, we trust you. We know you can do it. And the minute it's done, they claim it as theirs. And since they are the person evaluating you, I just felt stuck. I'm like, okay, if I say something, there will be retaliation. But I'm angry because I'm not recognized of what I do. So I just felt, huh. And I think even when I started reacting, it was already very bad for a long time because that's the problem with trauma. You get maybe abused at work and you don't realize it even, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You don't realize it because you come from a space where people treat you bad. So, and then when you start realizing it, then you become rebellious. I mean, inside because (laughs) (laughs) still not showing, still trying to be the... But I think in all of that... um, We have to start talking. I think the workplace should become trauma-informed. Trauma-informed just means non-toxic in that there's a place where you can go and say when something is wrong and there will not be retaliation. There will actually be people, the issue will be addressed, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way that you feel safe. In my workplaces, I didn't feel as if I could say something was wrong, even if something was wrong. I didn't feel that. 
I felt as if uh, there would be retaliation. And sometimes I went to the HR and said, oh, yeah, but, you know, this person is in this position. You cannot do anything against them. HR? But I thought HR yeah. should be, okay. They should be helping you. Uh, they should be um, facilitating this, right? And and um, mediating these things, right? And did you do you think they also do you think they also felt scared that they would be retaliated against? Like, why would they say that you can't do anything? For some people who were like who had high positions, they're like, okay, if you if you make an official complaint, you're the one you you will be fired. Mm-hmm. You you will lose your job. You cannot do anything against this person. You're just gonna hope that things get better or they change or something, and <laughs> it just makes you feel. I mean, it made me feel kind of hopeless. I'm like this, 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 um, this sentiment of uh, helplessness that I had from childhood. It, this, these kind of situations where you try to reach out for help to the. I mean, like going to the HR is already so stressful, right? Yes. And then you hear that. And then so you, you, you retreat back because you know if they tell you, okay, if you make an official complaint, it will come back and then you'll be the one to lose your job. You don't do anything. And I don't think it's okay. And I, I just want to remind people too that you said uh, this was right shortly after the economic disaster of 2008, 2009. So at the time we're recording, this is just over 10 years ago. We're not talking, you know, 1950s. We're not talking 30 years ago or in the 80s. This is only about, yeah, about 10 years ago that this was happening. And there's people who are saying that they have been in the field of uh, diversity and inclusion in work for 20, 30 years. Um, so I'm not, I'm not questioning their their credentials. I'm just saying that the work has been ongoing and yet even 10 years ago, uh, this very blatant stuff was happening. I am picturing, um, especially white bosses, employers, um, saying, oh, but we're, what do you mean we're abusive? We're not abusive because they, they picture abuse as physically beating people or maybe cursing at people. Uh, and I'm guessing they didn't, you know, actually use profanity against you, but it is still abusive. And even that whole packing up your stuff and moving it, it was like, oh no, we're just, that's just a normal department transfer, right? That's that's okay. Um, what do you think it is that they, in their minds, why why would it? Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question. I guess I'm. How would you show people that are kind of oblivious to the ways that they are abusive? Why certain things are not okay? Like, what maybe some examples you can give of how you felt abused by your employers, but they may not have seen it as abuse. Hmm. Um, for example, uh, let's say on the first day of work where there's an intake, there's a, a little party for the, for the new employees. So they are like 40 employees, you know, so they're serving, um, little, uh, how do you say bites to yes, eat? Yes, canapes. Everybody, canapes mm-hmm. and everybody has a glass of wine and it's all. Oh, wow. And, Swiss and, banks. And, must be nice. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, one of the, the owners of the bank stands there in front of everyone and says, Mademoiselle, where are you from? Then everybody stops talking because they are curious. They want to know that. Wow. You know? <laughs> Were you the and only it's black not only person? only for me. Yes, I mm-hmm. was the only black person. 
it was not only for me. He didn't, okay, even if he came to me, it wouldn't have been okay, but at mm-hmm. least, but he stood and made like a loud statement for the wow. whole room. Mademoiselle, where are you from? Everybody stopped talking. There was wow. no chatter anymore. Everybody, everyone was waiting for my answer. Uh, my mind just came up with something. I said, oh, me? Oh, I'm just from London. I just finished from the London School of Economics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because I knew he wouldn't dare ask me, but no, but where are right. you really from? Right. <laughs> I actually thought he, so he didn't go that far. I thought that that, that would be the next question too. No. So mm-hmm. I paraded, I didn't understand. Mm. And then I said, no, I'm just from London. I was mm. just finishing up my master's. I just came back. <sighs> Then, so he, he just let it go, mm-hmm. you know, but you know, that's, <sighs> that's, that's, uh, you know, how do you feel safe when in a room of 40, um, new employees, you're put on the spot like that mm-hmm. and many other instances. Um, at one point we had like a ski weekend that the, the work organized for everyone so I went, oh my God, I was not feeling comfortable at all. But anyway, so there was um, the Saturday night party. The theme was um, um, Mille Une Nuit, 101, the Arabian Nights, right? Oh, yes. A thousand and one yeah. Arabian Nights. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> so I, we, we, we had like kind of um, oriental outfits and stuff for the theme of the night. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never felt so uncomfortable as uh, in that place. So as soon as we entered the venue of the of the party, one of the associates of the of um, of the bank came to me and told me in English, Oh, we are so happy when our colleagues from NASA or Bahamas come to the to the ski weekend. Well we are really very happy when they, they make the trip and uh, and then so because for her in Geneva, there were no black people. If there were there was any black person in the bank, they must come from the Bahamas because they had an office there. But actually there were a few black people in the, just in the mind, and there are many black people in Geneva. The UN is in Geneva. Yeah. Just right? So um hmm. <laughs> and I was with the only other black colleague. Uh, um, another woman. So I, I replied to her in English. I said, oh, thank you. And uh, this, my name is this and my colleague's name is this. And then after I switched to French, I'm like, actually, we are from Geneva. And I told her that in French. You know what? She went silent. She didn't, because all the bias, all what she thought, all what she assumed was just floating in the air as we stood there. She didn't know what to say. She just stood there looking at us. I was looking at her. And then at the end, I just made a joke because I said, oh, your outfit is very beautiful. Um, I like the colors, how it was, you know. Then she said, oh, yes, my outfit. So she started talking about her outfit because in that moment, all her prejudice, all her kind of Latin racism was showing and... Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't, I didn't want to just correct her and say, no, we are from Geneva at first. No, I played her game. I spoke in English, mm. made her thought she was uh, right. And then I told her, actually, we are from the, mm. we are from the office in Geneva, where she goes to, too, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. These are little things, but 
it makes you wonder, you know, mm -hmm. if your leaders, they're like that, how can you flourish in such a place? You know, um, when I kept asking to, to change positions and uh, my bosses would say, you know, um, you should be happy you have a job. Many people like you, they don't have a job. They wouldn't even have a job here. So I just had the impression that when I was in university, you know, after that initial three years in Switzerland where it was super hard, and then I started picking high school, university, I felt as if my achievements could, um, could make me transcend prejudice and racism. And when I came to the workplace where it was like human relationships, it caught up with me without, you know, uh, without telling me beforehand it was coming. I saw that actually I will never be Miriam. I will always be the black girl first before Miriam Joko. And that put me in a deep depression. I wouldn't lie to you because I said, okay, there's actually nothing I can do. I cannot achieve my way out of this, out of being seen with prejudice. I cannot, I cannot speak um, good French perfectly and whatever. And then people will say, we try, we consider me. Actually, I understood that there is nothing I could do to escape this prejudice that they had built. And that's how they view people like me. Um, one other thing I want to make important is that I learned to distinguish be between people who only saw me through the prejudice and people who saw the real me. So at work, I always had friends. I would only get close to people who saw me as a human being, as I saw them as human beings. The other people, if, if you are not my boss that I have to deal with you, I don't, I, for me, you don't exist because I, you don't see me. Why, why would I, you know, but it's very painful to be navigating spaces like that, that, People don't bother to get to know you. They know. They know They know about you without even asking you, hey, what's your name? It's tiring. You know what, Miriam? As you're saying this, you're, you're hitting a chord with me because I've reflected on my life that uh, in, in Canada, where I've grown up, my closest friends, the, my closest coworkers, the people I relate to the most, were not white. Uh, many of them were East Asian uh, or South Asian. And at one point I felt bad. I was like, am I being racist? Because I'm more friends with people that are other immigrant kids or a different culture. But I just felt like I could relate to them better and they could relate to me better. When when you talk about at, in your workplace and, um, you know, figuring out who you could trust, who you could not trust and who you could be even good colleagues with, let alone friends with. Did yeah, what um I hate to say that like what race were they? Like were, did you have white friends? Did you have black friends? Like what was what was the mix, I guess, of the who were the people that you felt you could trust? Um I had white friends out of work. Um like I had a, a black friend at university and she had a group of friends. Um most of them white, and they became my friends um, when I got closer to her. But at work, um, at the bank, my <laughs> closest friend 
was this Swiss girl. Um, um, her family had immigrated from Vietnam. So she, uh, Celine, she was like my sister. So, mm. you know, <laughs> yeah, she, I could totally be myself with her. We, we, we like to eat this, uh, we, the, the cafeteria there. We had the steak on this day. We had this, we, we were just like ourselves, you know, and, um, it was a space where we could be ourselves. We created a little space where we could be ourselves because, um, even at the, at the public functions of, of, of the bank, you would have men say really nasty things to you, you know, like, I don't know that they wouldn't dare tell a white female colleague. They would come and say um, how you look like this or like really sexist and harassing yes. things. Okay, mm-hmm. you know. So we had a space where we could talk about those things together. We could we could um, process what was going on ar- around us together. So and we needed it to stay like that. Not uh, you know we needed it to stay like that because. If not, it, we, it's just as if then the self-doubt is just drowning us because we always wonder, is it me? Am I too sensitive? Maybe this is normal. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's me. And then actually it's up, at, at all not normal. And we had that space we could um, debrief. And, uh, and another colleague I was close to, too, she, she was um, part um, Tunisian and part Swiss, but mm-hmm. mostly Tunisian. So there was also this understanding, this support, this um, with a look, we knew, uh, knew something was going on with her or she knew something and would find time to go and debrief. Yeah, so it's not that, now that you make me realize, I, I didn't realize that my, my friendships were mainly um, immigrants. Um, yeah, because... Mm-hmm the people we could go talk to and the authorities we could go talk to, they would tell us there's no problem. They would not see a problem with someone telling me, oh, um, you know, uh, you should be happy you have a job. People like you, they don't have jobs, yeah. you know. Uh, it's like a white person telling you there's no racism. That's how Switzerland is. White people telling you there's no racism in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you are not black, you don't receive racism. So on the daily or the every day. <laughs> so how would you know, <laughs> you know? No, we are neutral. We are in this country. There's no racism here. That's, that's even till today, that's the discourse. Yes. Um, and it strikes me when I watch TV and I see, I don't know, um, they're talking about a part of the world. They could be talking about Myanmar or Cameroon. And they have a panel discussion. And you see like four white men mm-hmm. talking about a country from the, you know, from the comfort, from their comfortable homes in Paris, Geneva, with their nice cushions, being the experts on a country where you have 60 million inhabitants, 70, you, you couldn't in those 60 millions find an expert to talk about that country. Mm-hmm. That today for me is very I find it aggressive. When I see that, I just switch off the TV. I cannot yes. watch that. It's it's something we should question. And it's the same with people telling you there's no racism. What are you talking about? Yeah. And it's true. It's really powerful what you what you said. Now I realize that having 
my being close to my colleagues who were immigrants too, it's because we could talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And even, I, I think it's really important to note what you said about um, how you were treated as women, you and your your best colleague, right? Your best friend mm-hmm. at work. Where, same, same thing, people in Switzerland, people in Canada, Europe, North America, well, you know, we've come a long way in, in women's rights and equality. There's no more sexism or, you know, sexism is treated very seriously now. But that, that intersection of your race identity as well as your gender identity, maybe uh, white Swiss men were not overtly sexually harassing white Swiss women, but they felt for some reason, well, we know why, that they could do that to you and to your friends that were not white. Um, as yes. women, like somehow that made it acceptable. And then so for, so white women speaking about women's issues, I'm not, I'm not trying to discredit all white women. That's not the point of this, but there's an additional layer when you're not white or when you add some other traumatic identity, something that's not part of the common. And that, that is why it's important to talk about intersectionality and how these layers make things more complicated. It's not just on the surface. Bring any woman or bring any man or even any black man. He can't talk necessarily about all the things that a black woman faces. So thank you for bringing that up. I think that's really important for people to know. And thank you for saying that because um, what was shocking there was that it was happening at work. And we, I knew that it was because of the prejudice, these ideas they have about us. Because outside of work, men... Uh, propositioning me, it was all the time, even when I was pregnant with my daughter. What? How much it, yes, in Switzerland, how much is it? Do you take 100? How, <gasps> how? The first time I was a teenager, I was eating a burger at the McDonald's at 4 p.m. The guy comes to me and say, do you take 100? I went home, I didn't understand. I said, he went away. I went home, I told my mother, I said, a guy came and just told me, you take 100. What, 100 what? What? So my mom explained to me that he thought I was a prostitute. I was so sad. But that was not the only time. It happened time and time again when I was doing my groceries. Someone would follow me around and ask me, do you take 100? Oh, my god! So I became so self-conscious. I wouldn't wear for many years, all my teenage years. And I wouldn't wear a skirt. I wouldn't wear a dress because... With the trauma, I was like, there must be something I'm doing. I would stop even in the in the in in shop windows and look at myself, but I would, do I have too much makeup? Why was I propositioned? But it was not me. It has never been me. <laughs> you know? No, it's not you at all. I I'm shocked. I'm I'm horrified. Oh, no. Yeah, no, it was um so when it happened at work, I'm like, wow, even at work where we have set rules. It still happens, you know, not proper, but yeah, like these, you know. Comments about your body yeah. and stuff? Like, yeah, yeah. Wow. I can't believe, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised, but you are surprising me. You know what I'm, I'm thinking? This is what I'm picturing, Miriam. Every Christmas time, every just end of December, the sound of music, in North America anyway, the sound of music always comes on as the Christmas movie. And I think about the end when... Switzerland is seen as a sanctuary, right? The safe zone. Oh, you know, terrible Nazis are persecuting people, but go to Switzerland and you'll be safe. 
but that Von Trapp family was white. <laughs> and they uh, probably felt safe because they were white people going to a white country. So the Nazis were made out to be the bad guys. Switzerland was made out to be this hero, this rescuer. And not, again, not trying to say that all Swiss people are bad or all white Swiss people are bad. That is not the point either. But it is very important that we get rid of this stereotype about Switzerland being all good, you know, only welcoming and neutral, no prejudices one way or the other. That's not true. You're revealing very clearly that's not true. Wow. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Um, I know that Swiss people were not like this. I didn't only have... Um, I did not only have negative experiences in Switzerland. Um, I had scholarships. I had many opportunities to build myself, but there was no space for me to exist, to thrive, to be free as a black woman. That space doesn't exist, didn't exist for me in Switzerland. The, the space for me to be free, to go out of my house, not care about my hair, my makeup, if someone would judge me or it was not there. I lived on guard for many years. Of course, I it comes from trauma, but it also comes from the way the society was, mm -hmm. the things that were thrown at me. Mm -hmm. If people keep asking me, um, is it 100? I will not go out dress as I want because <laughs> I, I'm trying to hide. I'm trying to hide. I'm, I'm trying to be yeah. there, but not there so that someone would not come and say something to me. So, um, I mean, Switzerland gave the right to vote to Swiss women in 1972. So that's very, very telling. Yeah. That's very late. My goodness. Yeah. Or 71. 71 or 72. Right. In the 70s. That's super late. Yeah. It's one of the latest in uh, Western countries. So it shows already that it's a, it's a very patriarchal system where Women, as soon as they have kids, uh, in terms of career, it's very hard for them to come back to the workplace, to move up. Um, I used to, when I was already working in the, in one of the banks there, I would hear my my bosses interview a young woman and say, and come and discuss in the in the open space. No, we cannot take her. She's twenty nine. She has a boyfriend. She's gonna have a baby in the year. We we cannot hire her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know. Like normally, openly, they're discussing that. So, yeah. Well, and all that changed when you came to Canada, right? Because we don't have racism in Canada. <laughs> um, you see, made me cough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you may need to take another drink before you, uh, yeah, uh, before you continue the story. Because I am sure that uh, like, like the Von Trapp family fleeing the Nazis, Going to Switzerland, you when you left Switzerland and came to Canada, everything was great. You never experienced racism again. Isn't that true, Miriam? <laughs> well, not exactly. <laughs> oh, oh uh, tell us about that, please. <laughs> yeah. So first, I uh, I lived in a Parkdale in Toronto. That's where mm -hmm. um, many, I think, originally many uh, Tibetan families mm -hmm. settled there. So. Mm -hmm. So um, they made my moving to Toronto wonderful. Mm. <laughs> I learned a few words of Tibetan because my second daughter in daycare, uh, the, her caregivers were mostly Tibetan. So she she knew a few words in Tibetan. Oh, amazing. So, you know, I had to learn how to put, like tell her to go to sleep in Tibetan or, <laughs> you know, like calm down in Tibetan and, you know, a few words. 
And so it was, I, I loved it there in, in Parkdale. Um, I felt freer than in Switzerland. I was not on guard every time I left my house to, to behave like a modest citizen because, you know, as a black person, there's always someone who will tell you that's not how you do it. You don't walk on the lawn as they used to do in Switzerland mm. all the time. So mm-hmm. I dropped this, uh, this stress of being a modest citizen because you're observed and, you know, so that stress slowly went away, which I really appreciate. I didn't feel the need to look perfect all the time. But I realized that there's racism in Canada. It's uh, So I find Canadians, um, I found Canadians when I arrived open, you know, they can easily have conversations because they're Swiss, they're very reserved. They don't, they don't speak so easily to people they don't know. Right. But I realized that, the, for example, I can give you an example in Parkdale. My daughter was doing a ballet class. It was $300 uh, a year mm-hmm. for the class. And um, when we went to the end of year recital, so this it was a ballet school. They had like different levels, different classes. I don't know, hip hop, ballet and stuff. So at the end of year recital, you saw that even though Parkdale, okay, there's one part where you have those condos, immigrant families, and there's a part where you have houses. It's not far from Roncesville. So at that recital, you saw that most of the kids were white. Right. 90, 95%, I would say, were white kids. So that's when already I said, oh, here it's a bit more subtle, but there's racism here too. Because um, I wondered why would why did the kids who live there around this uh, community center where these classes were were not um, uh, enrolled in ballet? I'm like, okay, maybe for some families that fee of three hundred is already too much, you know? Absolutely. Maybe the parents are already working at that time; they cannot bring their kids to ballet. You know, I I saw and then. Even in the in the moms who came there, there were some we became great friends, um, and we are still in touch today, you know. But there were some you would say hi, they wouldn't say hi back to you. They wouldn't reply to you. They wouldn't even answer. No, they wouldn't answer. And some they wouldn't answer, but when they heard me speak French to my daughter, then I became interesting. I was worthy of. Uh, of them trying to say hi to me. And in that case, I never say hi back. I'm like, you know, if, because I saw that in the West, that's something that always disturbed me. The human being is not valued until, or in capitalism, let me say, not the West, in capitalism. Mm -hmm. People, someone sees you, they have a prejudice of what they think you are. And then maybe they see that, oh, you went to this school, you speak this language, then you have value. Then now they want to speak to you. That for me is, oh my goodness, Mm -hmm. repulsive, repulsive, you know, repulsive. I feel as if you should give a human being a chance. You can connect or not connect. That's fine, you know, but not that you give them a chance or whatever based on things that you define as making a valuable human being. 
because in my upbringing, my great-grandmother, she couldn't read and write. I can tell you that she was a very valuable human being. And many other people I know who cannot read and write, but it doesn't make them less valuable. They have other other things they bring to the world, their instincts, their knowledge, their ancestral knowledge. So this is something I always struggled with in the West. So when I made those encounters where people initially, they don't want to speak to you. And then maybe they see that, oh, you're educated. Oh, you can speak French. You're in Toronto. But oh, then all of a sudden you're, oh yeah, uh, uh, my child is starting French school. Maybe you, no, I don't want to practice. No, sorry. I don't want my daughter to practice French with your daughter. No. So I noticed those, it was subtle, but I noticed those differences that I live in a neighborhood where mostly immigrant families live in. But when it comes to this ballet school and the recitals, um, most of the kids, 95% of the kids were white, you know, not reflecting how the the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. but reflecting more, the other side of where you had houses where it was more, um, it was closer to Roncesvalles. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it made me already realize that Canada, <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, you know. Miriam, that is such, a, that's a powerful example. I, I really, it's, it's, there's so many implications in there. Because I, I completely agree with you too about another intersection, right? How capitalism only sees people as tools uh, or human resources, literally, to make money. And so those uh, white women who, you know, saw, they didn't want to talk to you until you had use, she, they, until they had a use for you. And that use for you was that you could help their daughters get ahead by practicing French. And there's capitalism mm-hmm. behind that too. So... Uh, I bet you there's, I, I think this is also where people need to recognize that sometimes they just, I hear people say, oh, I'm, I'm not racist. I have black friends or I know black people. I work with, you know, uh, Asian people, black people, whatever it is. But I wonder in what context really that they have what they think are friends or that they work with people. Like, is I don't know that, uh, like I, you certainly wouldn't consider those women, your friends, or even, oh, yes, I'm in a group, a ballet group with other white people. Like, you are, but that doesn't mean that they accept you. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, I have an instinct of knowing when I'm accepted. So mm-hmm. there were uh, maybe two moms in there who I knew saw me for the person uh, I am, and uh, we connected, right? Because they were I don't know, really open-minded. They were, they were human. Mm-hmm. They were human before mm-hmm. anything. Um, of course, it's when we spoke later that I knew that one had been to Harvard, but she didn't come to me saying, you know, I, I'm graduated from Harvard. And no, <laughs> she tried to connect first. And then, of course, like we, we, we learned, we came to interact more, hung out a bit after ballet with our kids because they liked each other. And then, then we learn more about each other. That I found valuable. But the the human resources, that tool aspect, it's really, really difficult, especially when um, you're a trauma survivor and you already struggle with feeling worthy and not feeling like a number or just a cog in a system, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's hard. It's hard, you know? Yeah. I want to 
ask you about another uh, another intersectional layer. Like when we add on some of your past trauma, you've spoken before about your workaholism, right? And I, I'm connecting between both like your you, what you've said around your perfectionism. You want to perform well for people. Uh, your identity coming from your intelligence, your education, and whatnot, and then add on to that um, how you, yeah, how you are at work, or how you, how much you, how much you work, and how you work at work. Can you talk a bit about how that all come came together for you, and what it was like for you working in Canada? Like, what, yeah, what does, what was that like? What was the experience of working in Canada? Um, I think. In my work, um, in my job description, there was uh, being able to manage ambiguity. Uh, maybe I should have inquired more because <laughs> it turned out that that was not my thing. Let's, let's just put it mildly like that. Um, because uh, when when there are no rules, kind of, you know, you don't know what is expected of you exactly. You keep making suggestions and then, you hear, no, that's not it. But no one can tell you, this is what we are looking for. It's really very confusing. And uh, even though you know it's okay, there's still a part of you that always doubts that maybe it's you not understanding. Maybe the problem comes from you, right? Yeah. But yeah, that's I found that very challenging. And um, I found that in, in, in Canada, in the workplace, there's many... Uh, to hear the real version of things of what's going on in the workplace. You have to talk to people offline in corridors, uh, with, uh, drink a coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, in meetings, all what is said, um, sorry, but I just found that it was not the truth because people were just so scared of saying what they thought. That So we have a meeting where we are dis- deciding on what we want to do, but people are not saying exactly what the thing should be done. And then, so, hmm, so I took this habit of talking to people. I didn't bother with people that I couldn't connect with, but I connected to many people because that's the only way I kind of understood. I I, I could feel in my workplace that there was a history I needed to understand in, in order to understand my job, and I wouldn't learn that history in meetings. So I connected to many people, and uh yeah, another another African woman like me gave me, you know, told me the background of my position and mm-hmm. how it came to be created. And that was very helpful. And um, how, how, like, there were two things. So I created many relationships with my colleagues, but I had, I had a hard time um, understanding the direction of the work I had to do. And it was confusing and it was, I don't know, I didn't. And then I find myself again in that position where I know I'm not seen as a person. I know I'm not seen as a human being. I was hired because I, uh, I uh, okay, I needed a job. And then I thought, okay, maybe I should take this entry level job to be safe, to make sure that I'm, I'm hired. But that I was hired with the notion that I didn't know my value. Mm. I didn't know what I was worth in the workplace. And I wouldn't say to be exploited, but that's how it kind of felt like. 
And when I started speaking up and saying, hey, actually, I started telling my truth. I'm like, I know that this is not the position I should have been hired in. I know the work that I do is two levels above this position I was hired in. And actually, I was coming out of postpartum depression. I was suffering from a lot of anxiety and I couldn't see how I could do the work I'm actually doing now. So how do we shift things around to make it, you know, to to put me maybe in the position of the job I'm doing? And it was met with a lot of resistance, you know. Hmm. What so kind of resistance? Like how how did that resistance come out of it? Yeah. For me, it, it came out a bit uh, manipulative where I was... I was being convinced that no, 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 you're wrong. You're not doing. You're not doing the. You're not doing so well. And I knew it. I knew I was doing well because I was working with many other people, and I saw what I was doing compared with what other people were doing. So I knew. So this time, I think um, I don't know. I I I the self doubt did not shut me down. The self doubt did not be. Oh, okay, maybe they are right. I'm like no, no. I know, I, I work with other people. I see what I do. I see what they do. And um, I see what is asked of me and and the, the meetings I attend. So it cannot be, it cannot be that. Um, but there's no space like to, to correct. It, it was as if where you put yourself in this position, you have to bear the consequences. And... Um, I don't know. I just feel like in the workplace, I just feel like if there was space for me to say what I thought and then have it really, have my, the superiors consider what I was saying. Uh, like, honestly, you know, mm-hmm. it would be more motivating to work because for already as a trauma survivor, waking up, you know, getting, taking that shower, getting dressed, putting that makeup and showing up in the office with a smile. It's already a victory in itself. Yep. It's a victory in itself. So when when you don't know what you're doing, there's no direction. And at the same time, I was documenting everything I was doing just, just to be sure that we will not say, oh, no, you didn't do anything. Which is which happened? I'm like, no, no. Look, I did this. I did this at this date. I did this. I did, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I just felt like it. Just felt like um, I just I would. It's at one point I told myself, oh my god, my one of my Swiss bosses and this my Canadian boss is using the same language. Hmm. It must be the capitalist language, but I'm just fed up of this bullshit, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> you know, this what, is not serving me. What kind of language? You know, oh no, you still have to, you still have to work harder. You still, I mean, I, I just feel as if some bosses, they know when you suffer from low self-esteem. They know. Hmm. And if you're like me, you don't aim for the jobs that you, because you're scared that you cannot do the job, you're, you're doubting yourself and you aim for those other jobs. They will just exploit you because you just put yourself in that position. And when you start asking, so, but I see that these other people, they do this, but I do this. Maybe we should change my job title. 
Say, oh, no, no, you're not there yet. You think you're doing well, but you're not doing well. And the difference with Switzerland is that this time I didn't believe it because I knew that, you know, maybe with time I had at least, had, I had some awareness mm -hmm. on, on the, the work I was doing, you know. Um, and also when there's no direction, you cannot be, cannot be perfectionistic in that. You try this, it doesn't work. You try that. So it, it, it puts a lot of stress and anxiety. So I went to work. I was very, very stressed and anxious, um, trying to perform on things that I didn't understand or, you know. Yeah, it was confusing. But I, I saw know. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I completely, I completely can understand. And especially your point about it, it feels exploitative, And I can also picture the reaction, the instinctive reaction from many employers and white people saying, "But you, uh, no, I'm not exploiting." How to help them to help them understand? Like, how would you respond to a employer saying, "Well, how, how are we supposed to know? Like, we don't know that this person had all this trauma in their past, and there's all this stuff that comes with it. Like, are we supposed to read people's minds and and cater to every person's situation? Like, how?" We feel like we're we're listening. So how are we supposed to know? Like we, yeah. How would you respond to an employer saying that? I would say, um, if you want to know, you can create a safe space for an employee who has trauma to tell you. They wouldn't tell all your trauma, but they can tell you. For example, they suffer from anxiety. I did share that at work with my because it was just. Yeah, I feel I felt the need to say that I couldn't just hide and try to be perfect anymore. It was really eating me up uh, um, inside. Um, actually, the hiding comes from not feeling safe to say something. You know, that's mm -hmm. where the hiding comes. It's not at one point. Of course, at in the beginning, I didn't I didn't want to say anything. But at one point, I could have said stuff. But the space was not there. I always feared retaliation, and retaliation there was if I tried to say something. So when you don't have a backup, you don't have money to fall back on, or a parent or an apartment, you can, if you lose your job, you can go stay with some. You try to not say anything because you want to keep your livelihood, you know, especially if you have children, if you... What I was always wary at work is not to make my boss understand exactly my living circumstances because I just felt like they I saw them use it against people, you know? So I was very careful, especially when I was in banking, to not even tell what I was doing during the weekend, just to not give them a sense of who I really was because I didn't see it as safe. I saw it as they could use it at some point to take to to I don't know to get me out of the job or something you know or to to in the end of year review and oh you know since you spend your weekends doing this and then you you're surprised um one of my bosses wanted me to work till I gave birth because another woman had worked until she gave birth so he to a man huh? <laughs> a white man <laughs> telling me I should work until I was ready to go to the hospital And, and you know what I bet you? If your water burst on his carpet, he would have yelled at you for that too. So there's yeah. no winning. <laughs> you 
know, I'm like, wow. you don't know my circumstances. I have a um, pregnancy, diabetes. I'm struggling with lots of stuff, mm -hmm. you know. I don't tell you because I don't trust you. And you think I should work because, you know, you know better. Mm -hmm. you, you, Of course, you've been pregnant before, <laughs> right? You know better. You know, you, you know, you know what mm -hmm. I should do. So that just, you know, that doesn't build trust. That doesn't build safety, like a, a feeling of belonging doesn't build all of that. I'm not saying that um, work should be, work people should be, all be my friends. But I think really, yeah, if we want people to perform, we have to take into account the people they are. You know, in situations where I felt understood by my bosses, I went above and beyond. I went above and beyond. And how did they make you feel like they understood you? Um, I had a boss at one point who was super strict, but he was fair, you know, and I knew this person was fair. I would, I, I, I wrote a report. He told me it was not good enough. I believed him because I knew he was a fair person. And I rewrote the report until it was good enough. And he told me it was good enough. So, when we had things to do, I would anticipate things, do more things and bring them to him and say, hey, there's a situation here. We have to we have to tackle it. If not, we'll not be able to travel and things like that. But he was open. I could go speak to him. And he was a white man? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But he was a, he was a man? Yeah, mm -hmm. he was a man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I... I want to ask you about this because we we talk about support and openness and creating safe environments, and you know a lot of times that is it's about white on other races prejudice and etc. But sometimes I have felt this. I don't know if you felt this that even within my own culture community with like Asians and other Asians and women with other women are not as supportive, especially when you think you're a woman or you're Asian, surely you would understand my situation. But I have, uh, you know, my close Chinese friends saying, well, I, I don't know. I've never experienced racism. I think I don't, I haven't felt that in Canada before. Or women saying, like, women professional coaches, I've heard this too, where like, oh no, it's, the, the data shows that women only apply for jobs that they feel 90% qualified for, whereas men apply for jobs they feel 30% qualified for. So you just need to get out there and apply for those jobs. You need to get over your limiting beliefs, right? Just do it. And I'm like, how can, are you not a, have you not gone through the same things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are your experiences with other women or other Africans and feeling support from them? Hmm. I think they would think that we're already lucky we have a job. We should not rock the boat too much sometimes. Um, I've heard that. And I have a theory about that. I feel as if the capitalist system oppresses us so much that sometimes we fight each other instead of being a support system for each other. We, we, we want to kind of distance ourselves from... Um, the prejudice by showing that we are not like the others, you know. Mm. I hated it when people told me, you are not like the others. I'm like, no, 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 I'm like the others. You see those people taking the boat to come to Europe? Those are my brothers. They're just trying to make a living. I identify myself 100% to them. Those Africans crossing on these boats to come to Europe because yeah. they, they, 
they're desperate. They don't see any future. Those are my people. Don't tell me because I fit your pressure, your, your, you know, mm -hmm. I, I speak like you because I've learned to not show you how I really speak, but to speak like you. I have fancy degrees like you. And then now you say, no, you are not like the others. I'm like, no, it's survivor. I'm, I'm exactly like the others because it's a kind of denying us our humanity, you know? And um, yeah, but it's, it's not many people come to this conclusion, you know, mm -hmm. to, to say that um, they want to feel, it's also like a personal thing. They want to feel they're different. They're, mm. they're a model. They are different from the mass, the, what people think it looks like, you know. So, but I say like we have to get rid of that. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't save us. It doesn't serve us. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone still wants, if someone still wants to be to have prejudice, they they will have prejudice mm -hmm. it, despite us being the modern minority, the, but not many people understand it like that. Yeah. Um, I've seen, when I see it, well, I just steer away from it. I've seen sometimes um, other African women who are, they are more like, they are harsher to people who look like them mm. than to other people, you know? They, 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 they would give more grace to other people because maybe they don't want people to think like we are a group together or she's being nice because, you know, so they, they have this kind of mechanism to show that, uh, no, I, I don't want to be kind to her just because she's a black woman like me, you know? Right. And I find that very sad because it's kind of a system thing, pushing people to do, I don't know, weird stuff. So it's really important to understand these dynamics to not fall in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is, that is very rich and deep. And uh, you have so much to offer, Miriam. We could probably do five hours worth of podcasts and not cover everything that you have of value. Like just affirming again, you are absolutely full, not just because you have these fancy degrees or you came from this or that school. Um, although I think that's really, that's amazing. And I feel quite intimidated. I don't have a degree from the London School of Economics. <laughs> Uh, but the, the value you, that you, you bring, could have, don't worry. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not going there now, especially during COVID, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the value you bring is way beyond anything that can be captured by a degree or a certification. Uh, and so I encourage people because there's, there's so much more, um, that Miriam has to say, please go and listen to her free the people podcast, uh, which also just, I don't scratches the surface again, because these things could run very deep. Um, but you can find out a lot more from her podcast where she shares um, even more detail about her thinking and her ideas and her past and her website, um, miriamjoku.com. Uh, all of these links will be on our, our show notes page for the Changing Lenses show notes page. And you can also find some more ideas and support for what we could do to change on the changinglenses.ca page as well. Um, both Miriam and I are very passionate about helping and wanting people to find relatability. Like Miriam, if, if people on I the boat one, coming over are your brothers, yeah. you're my sister. <laughs> like yeah. so many things. You're like, you're my sister too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Miriam. There's, oh, there's just so much I relate to. And sorry, you there's one, there's more that you want to say. There's yeah, just maybe one thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to thank you for this work because it's so brave of you. 
you've had a wonderful career and to stand up and speak on these issues that are so um, important to you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, really. You know, <laughs> thank you. It's amazing. This is how we are going to undo these systems that um, oppress certain people because we have to undo these systems. We have mm -hmm. to change. We should not be the only people advocating for this. We, we, and I, I know we are not. We need more people along. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone like you speaking up gives a lot of power to, to, to that. So, merci. Merci, Miriam. That means a lot, coming, especially coming from you. And I'm, I'm high-fiving you through the screen right now <laughs> uh, because we, just, we, have to, we have to speak to power. We, we need to reclaim power that's been taken away from us, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm especially glad that you talked about capitalism as well. Because like you, you, you've been in the banking sector, you've been in financial systems that are all about giving to people who already have and making the rich even richer. So yeah, we're we're gonna have to investigate that further in in other episodes and in other ways. But yes, it, it doesn't make it doesn't mean we're against money. Like I'm, I'm. We need to make money. Right? You're a mother of three. Uh, I've got to pay for oh, yes. my condo, right? So we have to make money, but. We don't have to be the richest people in the world. That's that's not what it's about. So thank you for bringing that And we don't up. have to lose ourselves altogether to make money. Right. We should be able to be ourselves and make money. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for gracing us with your, your love, um, just the rich blessings of everything you have to offer us, your vulnerability and your courage. Um, I'm, I, I love you as my sister. I love what you're doing. Uh, and I hope that many people will be inspired and take away a lot from what you do. And if people want to follow up with you, Miriam, I know you're on all the social channels. Uh, what's the best social channel to get a hold of you today? Um, Instagram, underscore Miriam Joku, or LinkedIn. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm also, I'm also on all of them, like, yes. um, <laughs> Twitter, yes. Facebook. Yes, wherever you are, listeners, uh, that's where Miriam is too. So yeah. go go find her, ask her your questions, um, find out how she can help you if you're also on your healing journey or want yes. to share, just to share stories. Like we need to also talk more safely, yes. right? About mm -hmm. the, the truth that we see that we can't talk about at work because we are afraid of losing our jobs or whatever. So yeah, we're here. We're here to listen. Yes, awesome. definitely. Definitely. All right, Miriam. Well, I hope... Um, yeah, I just hope that we get to do this again and I support your work and I I, I you I know you support mine and we're we're gonna oh, yes, make changes you. together. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you, Miriam. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. I hope we helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. This episode was produced and hosted by me, with associate production by William Liu, and post-production by Q9. Until next time. I'm Rosie Young, your guide to changing lenses. <laughs>